7, and we are finally to the passage. This is not the actual passage. The actual passage um, was a, a, actually a different one, but it's, it's along the same lines. Matthew covers this, but Luke covers it in much more detail. So that's why we're using Luke here. But this is the actual passage that perked my interest in John the Baptist to begin with, which is why we're in the series on, on John the Baptist for this uh, bit of time. So let's go ahead and, and read this. If you're up on Facebook, we put a couple of things that this is about here today. Uh, the first off, we're looking at discouragement in ministry. That's going to be one of the first things. We are talking some about discouragement on Sunday, and this is also tie, tying in with that because John is going to face a time of discouragement in what he is doing, what his, minis- what his ministry is. And it seems like all of us can find times when either what we do in work or what we do in ministry or whatever it is that we do for while we're here, we can become discouraged in it. So where does that discouragement come from and how do we, uh, how do we handle it? What do we do to get out of it? So we're going to be looking at that. That's one of the things that we'll be, be looking for. And also, uh, well, so there's some more things in here too. We'll, we'll just dig into it as we go. Luke chapter 7, verse 15. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. We're kind of jumping in the middle of the story here, but I just wanted you to see the context of where this came from. And he, Jesus, presented him to his mother. So this is the story of when Jesus came upon a funeral and the man, not the boy, the man was in the, in the coffin and he saw his mother traveling behind and it says that she was a widow. So he, it said, defines him as a man, not a boy. So the reason that his, his mother was following behind, the man was apparently single, but old enough that he was a supporter of the family. She was a widow. So when he died, not only was she sad that she lost her son, but now what is she going to do as far as income and money and, and stuff like that? So uh, Jesus saw this and had compassion on her, said some things to her, and then went up to the coffin and, and uh, raised him up. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet, prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. So these are the things that they're saying. Uh, not just saying this all at once. They're, they're going around saying, a great prophet has risen up among us. They're going around, there, have you seen, there's a great prophet that has risen up among us. And then other people are going, God has visited his people. So they're going around saying things along these lines. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. So all this is going on about Jesus. So this is the setting of all this. Uh, Verse 18, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. So the disciples of John. John still has some disciples. Remember we saw before that two of his disciples had gone over to Jesus. One of them stayed with Jesus. We don't know about the other one. But the rest of his disciples still apparently are with John. They're considered to be John's disciples. So they hear about these things. John's in prison. So they come and report all these things to him in the prison. Come and visit him. And John calling to his disciples. So we don't know exactly how many disciples he had there present with him. But he he probably had more than two. But out of that group, so say that there was five, say that there was ten, whatever number was there, he calls two of them out. And he says, you two guys, come here. You two guys, I want you to go. Uh, And John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, what was John's title for himself? He was not the one. He was the voice of one. So he is supposed to be the voice of one. So he is looking for the one. Now, I had to, I had to pull this out of your outline because there was just too much to, to put into it. Um, see if it's... Uh, let's, let's keep on reading here. We'll, we'll get to that. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? So they come to Jesus. This, this question is repeated twice in Scripture. There's no reason to repeat this, is there? there there's no reason to repeat the question. We just had the question. Why does the question get repeated in the Word of God? If you're running out of space to record all the things that happened with God, why do you repeat the same question in two different verses? We just had it. Why don't they just say the disciples of John came to Jesus and asked them? Why do they repeat the entire same question? 
Because this is important for us to see. If it's repeated twice in, this, in two verses right next to each other, there's a reason. And that this question has some importance for us. And we need to look at it at more than just face value. How many people, don't raise your hands, how many people have read this story and kind of skimmed over it? I don't know what in the world is going on here, but uh, just kind of moved on to the, to the rest of it. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? So Jesus is in prison, sends his disciples to, to Jesus because he cannot go. Now remember all that happened to John. First of all, remember the events around Mary and, and Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And Mary and Elizabeth are in the same house for three months. They were, they were together. They, and, and Elizabeth knows that Mary has the Christ child. Because when she comes in, the baby in her womb leaped. And she knows he's the, 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 that baby's the forerunner. So this is the Christ child. So the whole time that John's growing up, while he is still at home, he's probably being told, your relative, because they're relatives, <laughs> Jesus, He's the one. But somehow they lost touch with each other because John went out in the wilderness. And while John is out in the wilderness, this is what happens to him. We already went over this. just going to review it for you. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is there any doubt in John's mind? When we come to this passage that we're looking at tonight, is there doubt in John's mind? How does this man, anointed of God, the prophet of God, Jesus calls him the greatest prophet, how does he get to a place where he has no doubt that Jesus is the Christ to a place where he's asking him, are you the one? This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who was preferred before me, and he was before me. This is he of whom I said. He testified of him. I did not know him but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. This is the second time he said that. I did not know him. What he's saying is, I was out in the wilderness. I was, I was hanging out in the wilderness. I didn't come into the city. I didn't know who Jesus had become or who the Messiah was. I'm out there in the wilderness. While I'm out there in the wilderness, this is what happened. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So whoever showed up and told John, John, this is your ministry. You are going to be a baptizer and you are going to be the forerunner for the Christ. And you will see the Christ. He's going to come to you to be baptized. When he comes to be baptized, the Spirit of God is going to descend upon him and it will remain on him. You will see this in the Spirit. You will see the Spirit of God descend upon him and you will not see it depart. That will be the sign to you that this is him. So this is what John is saying. Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. If you are a testifier, it means that you have seen something, an eyewitness account, so that you can come and testify. It's not something that you heard someone talk about. It's something that you saw. So if he's going to testify of Jesus being the Christ, something has to happen for him to testify. And this is the event. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus. And we followed that rest of that passage out before. So this is what he is saying to him. I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't know who the Christ was. I knew he was around. I even knew that I knew him when I was a kid. But I didn't know who he was. Then all of a sudden, out of the wilderness, comes to me this man to be baptized. I baptized him. And after I baptized him, the Spirit of God came down upon him, descended upon him like a dove, and it didn't leave him. And this one who told me, you will go out and baptize, he's the one who said, as you baptize, one is going to come to you. And this is what's going to happen. I saw that and I testify. This is the man. So he saw this. He had this happen to him. That in the spirit or whether it was a vision, whether it was a dream, however it came to him, it came to him very so sure was he about his mission that he never wavered from it. And even though nobody really liked John, he's out there by himself, out there in the wilderness. He's a weird guy, eats weird stuff, wears weird things. 
doesn't socialize with the rest of us. Even though all that was going on, he still stuck with what he was supposed to do because it was so real to him what he was, he was called to do. And that reality also came about and told him ahead of time how he would recognize Jesus. And then he saw it unfold. So how do you get from a place where all that happens and then you, you wonder? Now remember, for six months, John ministered alongside of Jesus. Not next to each other, not in the same area, but the same time that Jesus' ministry is going on, for six months, John's ministry was going on. He wasn't put in prison. He started about a year before Jesus. They overlapped for about six months. Then John was put in prison. So for six months, Jesus is out turning water into wine. Jesus is out healing the sick. Jesus is out preaching the gospel. People are talking about Jesus. John is hearing this. There's this guy in town. And oh man, we have not heard somebody teach like this man teaches. The anointing that is on, it's just, that's, it's something. And everybody who comes to him who, wants to, who needs healing is healed. I've even seen dead people raised to, raised to life under this man in the ministry when he came. And it seems like no matter who you brought, what condition they had, every single person got healed in those meetings. It was astounding. And he would teach for hours. Teach for hours. And they would be talking about these things. John would hear all this while he was not in prison. John's becoming more and more certain that Jesus is the Christ. If he had any doubt before, he certainly would be becoming more and more certain. But then something happened. And John's in prison. And he sends this message. And I don't know what kind of an answer he's expecting. But if he's sending this message, this man is questioning some things. Here's some things that this question infers. First off, everything I saw and heard was wrong. And John saw and heard a lot. He is now questioning whether all that was true. He saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove and remain on him. And it was told to him that this would happen. He is now doubting that very word that he got. If he is doubting that very word that he got, what else did that word tell him to do? told him to baptize. If he is doubting the very word that he heard that Jesus is the man, is the Christ, would it not also stand the reason that he is doubting whether he was even called into the ministry of baptism? Whether it did any good at all? Because remember, there's two parts to this that John reveals. It may have been more, but there's two parts he reveals. One, what he was supposed to do, that he was supposed to baptize. And two, as he was baptized, and that one would come to him. So if he's questioning that second part, wouldn't it stand the reason that he also questioned the first? Did all that time I spend getting ready to become the voice of one? Did all that time I spent out in the wilderness eating locusts? Was all that wasted? Was all that time I spent out there baptizing people and calling people to a place of repentance? Was it wasted? How does John get to a place like this? He gets there pretty fast, doesn't he? Probably a year and a half. Well, I'm sorry, six months, because six months before this is when Jesus started his ministry. And that's when he came and the Spirit of God descended upon him. So in six months, he goes from absolutely sure, this is the guy, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to a place of, are you the one? Or should we look for another? He's not doubting Messiah's coming. But he is doubting that he had the right guy. Have you ever gotten to that place where you doubted a word that God gave you? God told you to do a certain thing and you got discouraged? Isn't it, is, is any of it even worthwhile? Have I, have I made any difference at all? I think we all have come to that, 
place. Just know you're not alone in this. It's a tactic of the enemy. And if, that, if the enemy could pull John down from where he was, <laughs> don't you think he can get you too? Everything I saw and heard was wrong. Everything I believed was wrong. Everything I hoped for was wrong. That's a tough place to be, isn't it? Now, if you were going through this, what would your state of mind be? If you were in a place right now where everything you heard and everything you saw, you are bringing into question. If everything that you had come to believe is coming into question, and everything that you had hoped for as far as the future was coming into question, what would be your state of mind? Throw on that top of that, he's in prison. Now, Jesus gives an answer. I guarantee you, you are not going to like Jesus' answer. Guarantee you, you're not going to like Jesus' answer. In that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, of afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. So the setting seems to be that Jesus is in a healing campaign. They're bringing sick people. They're bringing all these, these, these conditions to, to Jesus. And he's ministering to them. And blind are seeing. Sick people are, are healed. This is going on in the meeting. And in the midst of that, John's disciples come up. Now imagine this. This has never happened in Israel before. No one has ever had healing meetings like this. No one has ever taught like this. Nothing has ever happened in Israel like this. And you're watching all this and you know, you're in line waiting to talk to Jesus. You've got a question for Jesus. Your question is, are you the one? And while you are waiting for your turn, blind eye healed. Lame man raised up. Withered arm healed. Demon possessed, cast out. One after another. Deaf ears opened. And you're, you're waiting and, and you're waiting. There's another blind guy. Yep, he's healed too. There's another deaf one. Yep, he's healed too. Just one after another, coming up and getting healed. And then you're, you're waiting for your question. Your question is, are you the one? And they're watching all this stuff go on. They're still going to ask the question, are you the one? So they come up and they finally get an audience with Jesus. And they ask Jesus, are you the one? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John, I am he. Why doesn't Jesus just come out and say, I am he? Does he have a, a somewhat similar conversation with his disciples? Why can't he just have that conversation with John? I mean, look at all that John had done. Look at all that John had gone through. And now the guy's in prison. Couldn't he just, you know, look. Just tell John, it's cool. It's all good. Just, just tell him. It's all right. Now think of it. This is actually a pretty stupid question. Here's the man that you've already proclaimed to be the one. And you're going to come up to him and say, are you the one? So what's he going to say? Yes, I am. Well, if he's not the one, He's lying. And he could do that if he's not the one. If he is the one, how are you going to tell from the answer? He could say, I'm not the one, I am the one. How do you know which way to believe? So Jesus doesn't answer him. Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Apparently that has gone on, in case anyone was wondering whether it had gone on by then. The poor had the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Huh. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. 
All right, so he doesn't answer his question. He just says, go on back and tell John the things you saw. I mean, you were sitting here in the meeting. You saw this stuff going. Just go back and tell him the things that you saw. John's already heard these things because the report of him went out. And that's what had come back to him in the prison. When he heard the report of all this going on, he says, hmm, go ask him if he's the one. Now, Jesus could have said, of course I am. Don't you remember? You got a word from God. You, t- you said it yourself. Behold the Lamb. You said it yourself. Don't you remember? Now, aren't there answers that you wish you would get from God? How many of you have ever asked this question to God? God, I'm so discouraged. Should I keep going? Should I keep going? Or should I just quit? Should I just stop right now? Should I keep going? And what do we want God to say? Oh, I know it's been tough. I know you've faced so many things and I'm proud of you for how you've, you've held up in there. I want you to know it's not a, not a lost cause. I just want you to keep on going. Keep on going. Oh, how many of us want to hear that answer? Yeah, we want to hear that answer. That's the answer we want to hear. We don't hear that answer, do we? <laughs> we don't get that answer. John didn't get that If John doesn't get that answer, what makes you think you're going to get that answer? So Jesus' answer is not direct, but simply connecting what he heard with what is... I wonder if I put, put that... But, but simply connecting what, what we heard with what is. That's it. Jesus' answer is not direct, but simply connecting what we heard or what he heard with what is. Not what we expect to be. See, sometimes, folks, we had developed an expectation of what should be. God has called me. God has said, you will do such and such. And I just kind of expect that after a while that what he has said that will come into this and then lead to this and then go to this and then it'll be this way. And we kind of just map it out that eventually it'll go over this, this direction. And if it doesn't go that way, it doesn't go the way we expect, then we're kind of get discouraged. Now, John probably had an expectation. He probably saw the Spirit of God as upon him. He probably comes down upon him. I'm the forerunner. And he... Uh, uh, he probably saw himself as a, in a, maybe a different role with Jesus and that role just never materialized. And maybe he saw Jesus as having a different role than he had. He saw, all right, he's going to come in, maybe you know, do the, the healing things, but eventually he's going to do some things to take over as king, to take over as being the Messiah. And I'm not quite seeing that. Maybe he had some expectations that Jesus wasn't quite min- uh, measuring up to. Sometimes, folks, we develop some expectations of what should happen. But we really are not... That's not necessarily part of the things that we were told. I think of what Brother Hagin was told. What was Brother Hagin told? When he was given the, the order from God, he said, Teach my people faith. Now, it didn't say that people would pack out the meetings. But maybe he could have expected, well, okay, we'll probably start in some small areas and eventually people will catch on and, and uh, things will take off and more people would come on out. He went through some tough times and it probably challenged some of his expectations. We've got to go back to what was said. Jesus is bringing them back to what was said. What was said to you? Now look at what's going on. What was said? The Spirit of God would come down upon you and it would remain. Now look at what's going on. Is the Spirit of God down upon me? Is that anointing on me? Is things happening? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess these things haven't happened before. See, the enemy loves to frame our expectations different from what God said. Because then, if we don't hit those expectations, he knows we're ripe for discouragement.
put this in your outline for you. It is easy for us all to expect something to be because we see it as good. I could see this being the end result of what God's called me to because that's a good end result and God wants good things for me. Right? And because God wants good things, everything I imagine that's good that's probably going to be something that comes. And if it doesn't come, we kind of get a little discouraged. How many good things happened to Jeremiah? How many good things happened to Isaiah? We can think of some prophets that had some good things happen. We can think of a lot of prophets that didn't have good things happen. We can think of some prophets that just got killed and died. Beaten. Blessed is he who is not offended. You see, we can get offended because... We, because Jesus isn't quite doing what we think he ought to be doing. <laughs> Jesus, you're still doing these same kind of meetings here. Kind of was expecting some, um, some rallies, you know, some cries against Caesar maybe, uh, you know, whatever it might be. We, we had an expectation here and it wasn't quite coming up and we can become offended. Can you imagine becoming offended at Jesus? Jesus, the most perfect person to walk on the face of the earth. And Jesus says... Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Which tells us that we can be offended on things other than what is sin. Other than what is wrong. Jesus did nothing but what he saw the Father do. And said nothing but what he saw the Father say. That's all he did. And he said people will get offended at that. Now if they got offended at Jesus who did everything perfectly, how much more can they get offended at you? Real easy to get offended because something didn't happen in our expectation. And John, whose ministry is to be the one who comes before the one. And now he's kind of questioning that. Kind of walking in a wrong direction. Don't get offended. Don't get offended. Stay back off that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at this whole chapter, well, not the whole chapter, but a number of verses in this, because I want you to see something that might actually, you may never have seen this before. And a lot of times we read through the Bible and we, we just miss stuff. Maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't. We'll wait and see. But it helps us understand what's going on here now. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son of Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes and, uh, said within themselves, This man blasphemes. In other words, they became offended. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he rose, departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. So the multitudes are glorifying God. What are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders doing? Seething. They're mad. They're offended. Same group of people see the same thing. One gets offended, one does not. Now with John, John's ministry and Elijah's ministry, of course, are very similar. They both preached repentance and righteousness or holy living. To live holy. They both preached repent, have a change, heart come back to God, and live, live, live righteously, live holy. Not accepting the things that were going on. Elijah came against the things that were going on in that day and age. John came against the things that were going on in that day and age. They both made very powerful people angry at them. Very similar in in that. John had baptism. Elijah had miracles. Which one would you want? (laughs) Elijah had fire. John says, I got water. (laughs) But they both loved God. And they preached against sin. 
But here's the thing, folks. If you are a preacher of righteousness and all you do is preach on or against sin, the people that you are sent to love, you'll begin to condemn. And instead of leading people into freedom, you will lead them into legalism. Because you cannot be a preacher of righteousness and leave the very foundation and purpose of God, which is to love people. Now, Elijah fell into that. And I think John did too. Now, we know when Elijah fell into it. Elijah, of course, when he was on top of the world, fire came down, burned up the altar. They killed the prophets of Baal, prophets of Ashtoreth. A big victory on, on Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. And then the queen says, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. She didn't really mean it. If she meant it, she wouldn't have sent a warning. Mm-hmm. And she wouldn't have sent a messenger. She would have sent an assassin. Right? You'd send somebody to go. Kill. But no one was going to go and assassin, be an assassin towards him because he's called down fire mm-hmm. and burned up an altar. And burned up water. This is some kind of fire. And they don't want to mess with that. So they probably wouldn't have gone. But he got scared and went away. And his uh, words out of his mouth were, and we know they were rehearsed. We talked about Elijah before. I've been very zealous for the Lord. Become very aware. See, when we start to follow into this pattern, become a preacher of righteousness, We've left the love of the people. Become very aware of our own works, of our own good, and of our own zeal. Become very aware of why we are better than most. We won't come out and say it that way. But is that not what Elijah is saying? I've been very zealous for the Lord. Now you can kind of read into that and say it this way. No one else has been zealous for you. I'm the only one who stood up for you on that mountain. There was no one else there. I was it. If it weren't for me, there was no representative for God on that mountain. I was it. (laughs) And I haven't been quiet about my faith. No one has come alongside of me and said, Hey, Elijah, we're with you. So what's he thinking about the other Christians that are around? They are inferior. Because they, they don't have any guts. And you see, once you start thinking this way, the devil just jumps in. That's right. You're the only one who's any good. No one else is as good as you. And your love for the people that you're sent to minister to can grow cold. But what you have a love for is you have a love for the law. And you begin to see how spiritual you are and unspiritual everyone else is. And how do you regulate how spiritual you are compared to what everyone else is? By the things you do. Well, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and no one else is doing these things. I'm the one who's doing them. And you begin to become not a preacher of love, but a preacher of righteousness. And you're leaving behind the other things. And you begin to have a love for the law instead of a love for the people. Elijah was very zealous about the law. We should only be serving the Lord God. These idols need to go. But it was not matched with a love of the people. And John seems to be falling into the same thing. Now look at John. John's ministry. He's popular. People like to come out to him. Then Jesus came on the scene. People began to go to his meetings. People began to go to where he was at. Now he was okay with this in the beginning. He says, I must decrease. He must increase. We were okay with that in the beginning, but then maybe after a while we're thinking, okay, I didn't think I was going to decrease this much. (laughs) I think I was going to become insignificant.
how do we know that they became a little more focused on the law than they should have? I'm going to show you some things here. Verse 9, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the, ta- at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he rose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, if you're wondering what this group is, consists of, tax collectors and sinners, generally this term, when it's used in this way for sinners, is talking about harlots. So here's the group. You have the tax collectors. Now, tax collectors are generally men. They are Jewish. But they serve Rome. They collect the money for Rome. So the Jews don't like them. They're Jews... So the Romans don't like them. So nobody likes them. So the only ones they can really fellowship with are are the tax collectors. Because they're in the same boat. Now as a tax collector, you can collect any amount that you want as long as you give Rome what's due to them. So if Rome gets 10%, you collect 20%, they're not going to come down. They're not going to pick on you. They're not going to do a thing. If you got 20%, that's fine. Just give us our 10%. They don't care. But you had the authority of Rome behind you, so if you collected 20%, they paid 20%, whatever it might be. That's why Zacchaeus was talking about, you know, if I overcharged anybody, I'll pay it back to them and all that sort of stuff. So, then you have the harlots. Now, the, the harlots, the, uh, the prostitutes of the, of the land, most of the men in the city would not be seen with them. Now, the key word there is, seen they may hire them and be going private places and things like that but you know they're they're women they probably like to have some fellowship so if there's going to be fellowship among them it's going to be groups of people that are cast off from society so the harlots would probably hang out with the tax collectors this is where you'd have your social life working life of course was was other places but this is where they would be for, for that. So this is the group of people when he says Jesus was with the tax collectors and the sinners. <laughs> He's with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. This is the group of people he's, he's hanging out with. All right, so we got that picture. It's important for us to have that picture. Matthew's one of the ones, he says, follow him. Now it happened as they sat at the table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice this about people. the, the, The Pharisees are in the same group. They're preachers of righteousness. They preach a law. And they're more passionate about the law than they are the people. And Jesus caught them on this quite often. But just as the Pharisees can fall into it, so can someone like John or Elijah and others. We saw some people in the book of Acts who fell into it. So they they say to his disciples, they don't say it to him. See, people that are like this, they never ask the questions of the right people. And if they do ask questions of the right people, they don't ask them in the right way. I think I put it in your outline for you, didn't I? People with this, this attitude ask questions to accuse, not become informed. They're not asking this question to find out, why does he hang out with? No, they're saying, how is it that he does these th-? their, their, their question is one to accuse, not asking for information. And they ask the wrong people because they don't have the guts to go before the, the other people and ask this way. So they asked the disciples, why? Well, if we can sow discord into his disciples, we can get some of those people that are around him uh, shaken, then maybe we can shake him. And that's what they try and do. Preachers of the law can leave a love of the people for a love of the law. I already gave you that one. Just want to make sure that you had it. Now, if you don't like a love of the law, you can write in some other things inside there as well. Or the things that are right. Or the things that are word worthy. Or a lifestyle that is worthy. 
People put all kinds of names on it, but it's still coming down to the same thing. We're legislating your activities, and we're more passionate about that than we are about the people. This is important. We put this in your outline so you get this. We leave serving in ministry, which is what we're called to do. We leave serving in ministry, and you can also write and work there. Whatever it is that you do. Don't just think of think whatever ministry just being something you do in church. No, uh, think about work too. Whatever it is that you do, you can put that in there. We leave serving in ministry or work for protecting the ministry. And that's a whole different attitude. See, we're not just in there to serve the people, serve God by serving people. No, now we're in here, we're protecting the word. We're protecting the integrity of the word. We're protecting the outcome of the work. We're protecting a lot of these things and we're losing the love of the people. We believe we are out in front, but actually we have gone away. When we fall into this, we actually are think we are out in front. I know not many people are with me on this, but that's because I'm out in front. Not everybody's going to be out here on this. No, actually, you just kind of have moved away. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That makes sense, right? (laughs) We're here to get sinners to turn around. Why not be in the midst of them? But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now we get to verse 14. All that to get the context of this and to look at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. If you see the other two gospels who record this same action, they only say that they came. They said that, in fact, the other two gospels put it this way the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and asked Jesus this question. But here in this passage, we have it put this way Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, But the context of this is that both the Pharisees and the disciples of John are in a period of fasting. The disciples of Jesus are not. So they come. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? That says a whole lot right there. Because right now the disciples of John have put themselves in the company of the Pharisees. How, would, how did John respond when the Pharisees came into the wilderness to be baptized? Who warned you? And now just a little while later, what, a year, a little over a year maybe? A little while later, we and the Pharisees... Yep, we're buds. We're there. Why are they there? Because the Pharisees and John are following rules. And they have a love for those rules. One of those rules is about fasting. And they've become so passionate about fasting and doing things about this that they come and they ask, ask Jesus. Why do we... Us guys and the Pharisees, we're out here fasting. You guys aren't even nothing. In other words, why are we more spiritual than you guys are? Why are we doing more spiritual things than you guys are? Because they have become in love. So in love with the things they see the Word of God telling them to do that they don't even see. They just partnered up with the same group of people they said was the enemy of the gospel. And they don't even see it. Wow. So if John had gone down this road 
of being such a preacher of righteousness. And if you're a preacher of righteousness, you see the shortcomings of other people. And if you, if you don't stay in touch with the love of God for the people, you see the shortcomings and the love switches from the people to the word. We don't like law, right? Laws, that's, that's uh, I can't fall in love with the law. But the word, oh, I love the word. So we'll put word in there. I love the word. God, I love your word. I just want to do your word. I just want to be passionate about your word. And we become more passionate about the word of God than we are about the people of God and ministering to the people of God and serving the people of God. And we've gotten so caught up with the passion for what the word says that we forgot what the word told us to do, which is serve God by serving people. If you want to become the greatest in the kingdom, become the servant of all. And we have lost the idea of service, lost the idea of servanthood because I am so superior to everyone else because I love this law. I love this word and I am passionate about this word. No one else is. No one else is near the level that I am. And I keep seeing faults in this one and faults in this one and I see how they conduct their ministry. I see how they conduct their words. I see how they conduct their study. I see how they conduct... And I keep seeing faults with these people and it puts a distance between me and them and I become more passionate about preaching the word thinking I'm getting closer to the purpose and calling of God and I'm only getting further and further away from it but I'm still in this passion and then pretty soon I get so far out I am so susceptible to being discouraged that I could be like an Elijah who goes from a place of having a great victory to a place where he is out in the backside of the wilderness saying, God saying to him, why are you here? Why are you here? Now, one of the things that is characteristic of anyone who falls into this is we are not as thankful as we once were. Mm-hmm. This wasn't my thing, but I saw somebody who brought this, this out. It was a very interesting point about Elijah. Remember when Elijah was, was um, sleeping and the angel woke him up and he gave him some special food. He says, eat this. You're going to need this for the strength. And he ate it. And then what did he do? He went back to sleep. Did you see anything in there about him being grateful for the food? Anything in there about a thank you for that? See, when we fall into this, folks, we become ungrateful for the things that we have. Ungrateful for what's going on all around us. John could not even see all the good things that were going on around, Jesus had to send it to his disciples. <laughs> tell John what you're seeing. Tell him what you're seeing. I know he already knows this. I know he's already seen this. But tell him what you're seeing. You're seeing the kingdom of God come down upon the earth and God ministering to his people. Tell him what you're seeing. Become ungrateful for it. Unthankful. And once we start doing that, we are primed for the area of discouragement, folks. Then the disciples came to John. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. wrote this in your outline here for you. When we leave behind the love for people in our work or ministry, the love of our work or ministry will soon follow along with its joy. When we leave behind the love for people in our work or in our ministry, the love of our work or ministry will soon follow Hmm. along with its joy. Now, see, the enemy knows this, so if he can get you to stop loving the people that you have around you, the people that they bring to you, if he can get you to stop loving those people, he'll get you to stop loving what you do. And if you stop loving what you do, your joy will go. And what happens when joy goes? 
The joy of the Lord is our strength. If the joy goes, so does the strength. And if the strength goes, then you feel like you're working so hard to get something done. And of course, no one around you appreciates all the hard work that you're doing. And you get more and more discouraged. It's a, it's a circle. But it starts because we left the love of the people. And somewhere along the line, folks, John left the love of the people. And he became a preacher of righteousness. You all need to repent. You all are a bunch of sinners. Can't believe how much you sin. Stop the sinning. Quit the sinning. Get out of the sin. Stop sinning. He became so passionate about that that he forgot the purpose was to show God's love to the people. Now, this is in my outline. It's not in yours. I couldn't fit it. If you see most everyone around you as subpar Christians to yourself, if you see everyone around you as subpar Christians to yourself, you are being led into a place where discouragement, resentment, and such will find you. Remember what Jesus taught us? The, I'm sorry, what the Word of God taught us when you see your brother in sin, how we were to correct him? Correct him as such, with such an attitude that you could fall yourself. Because if you have an attitude that you are superior, it will not go well with you. Don't have that attitude. If you feel discouraged, in whatever it is that you're doing, if you're feeling like there's no strength left, if you're feeling like I don't really enjoy this anymore, more than likely, the cause is that you have left the love for the people that God gave you. And all you see is their faults. And what has happened is you have become a preacher of righteousness. And you have left the purpose of the gospel, which is to show the love of God. Whatever it is that we do, it must always demonstrate the love of God. Don't just see the faults of the people around you. See the good things that are there. Because that's what God sees. And if all you can see is the faults of the people that are around you, then what you're saying is, God, your vision is blurred. Because there is nothing good in this person for you to see. Because what I see is better vision than what you see. That's not so good, is it? If God believes that person next to you has a purpose, if God believes that person has a calling, if God has put something out there for that person, who are we to believe anything less? And if we do, we're not following after the plan of God. We're following after the plan of Satan and we can come to the place where John is despite all the great things that had happened for John we can come to that place are you the one or should we look for another that question is loaded John is basically saying I'm ready to give up on you I'm ready to go find somebody else because I'm not quite seeing in you what I need to see Can you imagine asking a question like that if you thought Jesus was the Christ? The Son of God. I can't even imagine it. If you can go down this road to such an extent that the voice of one is able to say to the one, are you the one or should we go out there and find another one? A little more qualified. One who's going after this a little bit harder. One who's got a few more things going on for him than you do. Should we go out and find somebody else? It's a very bold question. But we can get there. And if you do, if John could get discouraged, folks, so can you. So can you. But if we can get our way back, the way back is there. Get the love of God for the people in your life. Get the love of God for them. Things will change.
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the answers you give us. I think every one of us here can say we have hit places where we have been discouraged, where we feel like all that we have put into the call of God in our life hasn't amounted to anything. We become discouraged and we see all those that are around us as less inferior, not measuring up. Sometimes we get to a place, we just say, just take me home. At least then I'll be around some perfect people. Father, we can't have that attitude. We can't let that come into us. And I thank you that you help us to stay along the straight and narrow way that you have. And just as Elijah got off and you had no pity for him, just as John got off and you had no pity for him, there is no pity for us, just instruction on what we should do to get back. But just as you didn't condemn John for his doubts, you don't condemn us, and I thank you for it. Give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any comments, questions? Did anybody ever see that partnership between John and the Pharisees before? Isn't that amazing? This is kind of kind of shocking on on that. That they could have the love of the people for as long as they did and then walk away from it? Yeah. yeah. It I feel like at you know, at some point there's gonna be some kind of The subtlety of it is and this is a great question. The subtlety of it is, is this you're not replacing a love for the people for a hate for the people. You're replacing a love of the people for what looks to be an increased love of the word. And the disdain that you have for people is because to you they're disdaining the word and deserve it. So it's, it's so easy to slip into this. And John, the boy, the more that he preached the the um, the repentance of the word, and the, the more that you do it, the more you can begin to preach. All right, well now you're lined up with this. Now here's this, this, and this. Now line up with that. And, and then here's this, this, and this. Now line up with that. You know, you can keep throwing out more of the word that we're not doing. It's just, that's the subtlety of it. Is I still feel, I'm in love with God. And I don't feel like that has changed. But these people that you've given me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You can, that's a great and, point, yep. And so, I mean, so you can see how this could be a tool of the enemy. Mm-hmm. It's like if you stop loving them and you, you know, you beat them over the head yeah. with it, they like, forget this. So they're not going to come to repentance yep. or come to, you know, or come to God, you know. And exactly you right. See. So it's like, okay, sure, go that way. Yep. Go that way and use it without the love of God, mm-hmm. and I don't have to worry about anybody coming in His kingdom. And Nobody else is good enough for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm yeah, but that's a, that's it's such a an aspect of it because mm-hmm. the more I get into, I'm not reaching the people, right. and I feel like they're just so hard-hearted. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're just so bent on their way of sin, mm-hmm. but I've disqualified myself from reaching them. And I can't even hear the words that I say. I'm just clubbing them over the head with a with a bat and not loving them. Yeah, it's it's a cycle we can get into. And it's a cycle of discouragement. 
And God, we operate by the love of people. God loves people. If we're going to have his nature, we have to have his love. It just can't go any other way. If I don't have the love for the people, somehow I have missed God. Somehow. I'm not telling you how you did it. I'm just telling you if you don't have that love for the people, somehow you have missed God. Now don't quit. Just get back and get that love of God. <laughs> Father God, I need your love. I need that working in me. There's, there's people out there I, I need to love. There's people out there I need to, to help. You know, even to the place we can go through Walmart and love all the people. Yeah. Now, with Elijah, that attitude of ministry of him being superior had probably been around for a little bit. It does. It will chip away at you. And then all of a sudden, you can't stand against against the queen who is powerless to stop you. But you did it anyway. Well, this is the one I was looking forward to. This is the one that, <laughs> that I was uh, holding out for. And the whole thing that got me into, into John the Baptist to begin with. When we get into it, I believe next week we'll be finishing this up. And uh, John dies. <laughs> Just tell you that ahead of time. John, John's going to, he's going to go. And we'll look at some of the things that are around the death of, of John the Baptist. Yeah. What's that?